Paul tells us that the cross is the stumbling block for Jews, and the first Jews to stumble upon the cross were the twelve. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but you, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So as we turn to this section here, we find that we are working through the most pivotal of Mark's sections here. This section in which the declaration, you are the Christ, comes. And then what follows that is this most startling of rebukes of Peter to rebuke Jesus. And then, of course, Jesus will then rebuke Peter for Peter's rebuke. So there's a lot of rebuking going on in this passage. But the rebuking actually starts before that in verse 30. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about them. So this is following, of course, Peter's declaration when he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And so immediately after that, we read these words, he strictly charged them to tell no one. Now those, that words translated strictly charged is the same word that's translated rebuke, twice other in the passage. It's the same word that's translated in chapter one as Jesus speaks to the demon who says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him and told him to say nothing more. Same word is used here. So Jesus' charge to Peter is something more than just a strong suggestion. The word implies for us not just a, a stern asking, but instead it, repl- it, it implies that there is a consequence that is, to be, that is to be realized. Either keep this charge, say nothing to no one, or there are consequences that are to follow. So his rebuke of them is sharp and clear and stern, and the rebuke is to say, say nothing to no one about this. So this is a bit odd for us to 
come across as, as finally Peter now declares you are the Christ, we might want to say, if we were writing the gospel, we would be the ones that would probably want to say, now, Peter, you're finally getting it. Now we've got something to work with. So now let's take this and everybody needs to hear that you are now declaring him to be the Christ and you just need to proclaim this. That's probably how we would have the gospel to play itself out. But Jesus instead takes the opposite stance and he says, okay, now that you've made this de declaration, say nothing to no one. And he doesn't just suggest it. He commands it and says, you are to say nothing to no one about this. So why would Jesus command them to silence when Peter just now has realized and declared this man is the Christ? After all, Jesus did send them out earlier to proclaim in chapter uh, 4. He just he sent them out there to make this proclamation. So why the, the, the command to silence now? Well, the proclamation that Jesus sent them out to before, if you remember, it was actually chapter 6, not chapter 4. But when Jesus sent them out previously, if you recall, they were sent out, first of all, with the supernatural abilities to heal the sick and cast out demons and these sorts of things. But then if you also remember, they, they were given these specific instructions. The instructions had to do with if they are refused. If, if they refuse you, if, if your peace doesn't fall upon their house, then you are to leave. Shake the dust off your sandals and leave. But then the message that we're told, the specific message that they told the people was the message that Jesus has been proclaiming since chapter 1, which is repent. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So we're told that that's the proclamation that they were making when they were sent out before, which is to say that it stops something short of saying, you need to repent. And guess what? We are with this man and he's the Christ. Now, perhaps some of their testimony included something of the nature of, of you know, you need to come hear our teacher. You need to hear him. He's, he's an incredible rabbi. And some even say, he might be the Messiah. Perhaps it included something of that nature, but we're told in chapter 6 that the basis, the summary, uh, the, the, the summary of their message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They weren't sent out to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. Now upon the declaration, we're going to immediately realize in the verses that are to follow why Jesus commands them to silence. And the reason is because they clearly are misunderstanding what Messiah is here to do. Remember, this is going to be the question that dominates the second half of the gospel. Why has he come? What is the work that he's come to do? So this question remains completely unanswered in Peter's mind. And so therefore, Jesus says, we don't need you to proclaim that I'm the Christ when your proclamation is going to be a combination of truth and lack of truth, a combination of clarity and non-clarity a proclamation of Jesus as Messiah when the understanding of what Messiah is here to do is muddied and unclear and in fact in some aspects false. So he strictly commands them to make to say nothing to no one about them. And then verse 31 and he began to teach them. So in your Bibles you probably have a new subheading under or right above verse 31 and I believe that to be in my opinion, just a little bit misleading because the way I understand it would actually put verse 31, not just together with verse 30, but in fact, part of the same sentence as verse 30. So I would read it this way. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things. So I see those two things flowing together, 
nice and, and tight with one another. And I think that subheading sort of distracts us. But any, in any case, verse 31, and he began to teach them. So we learn right away of a change in direction, a change in theme. And again, we've noticed that this direction in the gospel is going to take a marked and a noticeable change here in chapter 8 anyway. And here the change happens right at that moment. And he began to teach them. So that speaks of a teaching that is new and different and in some way separated and distinct from the teaching of the first half of the gospel. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. So the Son of Man has not just come to die. He did come to die. We'll we'll read about that in chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give His life a ransom for many. But not just die, but the Son of Man has come to suffer. Indeed, the wording here is very strong. He must suffer. And not just suffer a few things, but he must suffer many things. He must be the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and verse 3, that the Son of Man must be a man of sorrows, acquainted very closely and intimately with grief. So Jesus must not only be a sacrifice in our place, but God's plan for him, God's design for the sending of the Son of Man necessarily includes suffering on the part of the Son of Man. Jesus cannot just have a life of ease and comfort up to the point that He's betrayed and sacrificed on the cross. He must also suffer a great many things, and only some of those things will be physical. Many of those sufferings of the Christ will be spiritual and emotional as the weight of sin and the weight of what He has come to do weighs heavily upon Him. Indeed, this suffering really began back in chapter 1 as Jesus was plunged under the water, the one, the water of our repentance, the water of our sin. Jesus was plunged under that water in a, in a way, taking upon himself the burden of the sin of others. And so his suffering really began at that point, but he must suffer many things we are told and not just suffer, but he must be rejected. So this word rejected, it speaks very clearly of a rejection that is not just a simple uh, passing over or someone that just sort of maybe considers something lightly and then moves on to the next thing. But instead, this word speaks of a close and careful examination. And then upon conclusion of the examination, then you discard it. So the word here speaks of something that's the opposite of probably what many of us have experienced. Has anybody ever experienced the uh, wonderful experience of, of sending in a job application or a resume and you get the rejection and you are convinced that the person never looked at it. You, anybody ever had that happen to you? That you're convinced that a human being never saw your application. That's the opposite of this word. The opposite of this, of, of this would, or the opposite of what I just explained would be this word in which this speaks of a rejection that comes on the heels of a careful considering. Jesus must be considered. He must be carefully examined before he is rejected. He cannot be rejected just because the religious leaders in Jerusalem don't feel like traveling up to Galilee to hear what he's all about. Instead, he must be examined closely by the leaders of Israel and after examination be rejected by them. This is why I believe that the Gospels paint a picture of Jesus in which he is so patient 
with the Pharisees. As you read the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, do you ever get a little bit frustrated with Jesus? And you want to say to Jesus, why are you still talking to those people? Isn't it clear that they're never going to believe in you? Why are you still engaging them and giving them the platform to accuse you and malign you and scandalize you? Do you ever feel like that Jesus should have just withdrawn from them before he did? He must be examined by them. He must open his teaching bare to them. They must hear him. He must go to Jerusalem and he must teach in the temple courtyard for a week. He must go before the religious leaders and be carefully examined by them before he is rejected. He is not to be rejected on a whim. He must be approved. He must be looked at and disapproved of. And he must be rejected, we're told, by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. So the rejection must come from those who, comp- or who compose the religious leadership of the people of God. Jesus will be rejected by more than just the, uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders. He will be rejected by everyone, in, in essence. If you remember back to the uh, Triumphal Entrance Sunday or Palm Sunday, the previous one, or, I, or maybe the, the one before, I can't recall. But remember, as we talked about, as Jesus enters into the city on that triumphal day, and the people are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you recall what the people are doing there, they are choosing him. They are choosing Jesus to be their Passover lamb. But the same people who chose him will also, after a week of his teaching in the holy city, will reject him. So he will be rejected by the people. He will be rejected by Pilate. He will be rejected by Herod. In a real sense, he will also be rejected by his disciples as they flee for their own life on the night of his arrest and as they deny him three times. He will be rejected even by his own people. But the primary and the most fundamental rejection that Jesus must experience is the religious leaders, the elders, chief priests, and the scribes of his own people. Those who have been elected, appointed, anointed, as the religious leaders of God's own people, they must be the ones who bear the burden to reject him. So they will reject him and he will be killed. And after three days, rise again. Now verse 32, and he said this plainly. Plainly, that word oftentimes is translated openly, such as in John's gospel, chapter seven, we're told that he said these things openly. So No longer will Jesus now speak of his coming suffering in ways that are veiled or masked in any way. He has spoken of his coming suffering, but he's done it in ways that were, well, really not possible to discern what he was saying only by what he said. Remember when he said, for example, that uh, that when they accused him, they say, why aren't your disciples fasting like the Pharisees' disciples are fasting, or John's disciples are fasting? And he says to them, well, when the bridegroom is taken, that's the time to fast. And that's a sideways allusion, so to speak, to his suffering and his being killed. So Jesus has made allusions to that. But no more will Jesus make allusions to his suffering and death. He will now speak of this plainly. 
And the wording that Mark uses leads us to believe that this wasn't just an isolated incident or as we're going to see three incidents in the next three chapters of Jesus speaking of his suffering. Instead, as we read the word that he said this plainly, the word said is in the imperfect. So that could rightly be translated. He said this and he said it and he kept saying it. And it was one of the things that he just seemed to dwell on. Or earlier, when we're told that um, that uh, he began to teach them, the word there, teach, is in the present infinitive, which also speaks of a repetitive teaching, a constant type of teaching. This becomes a mantra of Jesus, starting here at the end of chapter 8. So he says this openly, he says this plainly, and he says this repeatedly. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is perhaps the greatest example in all of human history of one who is so right and yet so wrong. Isn't it? So close and yet so far. So correct and yet so mistaken all at the same time. Peter has just barely finished the words, you are the Christ, when now we read these words that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So we are told very plainly in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that the cross is the stumbling block for Jews and the first Jews to stumble upon the cross were the 12. The very first ones to stumble upon this was Peter and those whom he spoke for, because as we'll see that Peter is often the spokesman of the 12. Peter was a natural born leader. God created him to lead people. And so he's naturally stepping out and speaking for other people on many occasions. And this is one of those occasions when he's speaking for for the other 11. And he and the other 11 are the first to hear of this cross. And they're the first to choke on it. So taking him aside. Now, as he takes him aside, I think perhaps we're to hear something there in Mark's words of, of, you recall his theme that he now starts. We've changed from the theme of the water as Jesus is either on the boat or walking beside the Sea of Galilee or just getting out of the boat in the first half. Now the theme is on the way. He's constantly on the way, on the way, on the way. And so perhaps Mark wants us to hear something as he took him aside. Maybe taking him off the way. Maybe this misunderstanding, this confusion, this spiritual miscomprehension on the part of Peter is meant to be seen by us as taking Jesus temporarily off the path of his traverse to Jerusalem. Taking him aside. He's going to take him aside and rebuke him. Also rings, at least in my ear, the echo of what we talked about at the first miraculous feeding. Remember the first miraculous feeding? And we talked about how they were going to take him and make him king by force. And we talked of the irony, the sad irony of thinking that you are going to forcibly make someone your ruler or your king. And so here is the same theme coming back once again as Peter takes the master aside, the one who is just proclaimed to be the anointed one, and he's going to set the anointed one straight on a few things. It's exactly the same thing as taking him by force and making him king. So he takes him aside, ostensibly to save him some embarrassment from this little talking to that Peter's going to give him. 
And he began to rebuke him. Same word there. He began to not just say to Jesus, Jesus, let's, let's rethink this thing. Instead, the word rebuke speaks to us, once again, of a stern command that carries an implied consequence. Jesus, we have proclaimed our loyalty to you. If you continue on this path, you're going to lose us. And not only us, you're going to lose this, this crowd, these people. We've already left. We've already lost many when you started giving that teaching about eating your flesh and drinking your blood. But if you continue on this path, I'm warning you, Jesus, you're going to lose everybody. So he began to rebuke him. Now, why do you think that Peter, we're told, began to rebuke him? It's as though the rebuke wasn't completed, isn't it? Now, why, if that's the case, why wasn't Peter's rebuke completed, do you think? We're not told. But I love to speculate on these things. Could it be that Peter's rebuke was interrupted by Jesus' words, Get behind me, Satan? Could it be that Peter hadn't yet gotten the rebuke fully out before Jesus is now saying, Stop right there, Peter? Possibly. Or possibly Peter himself, once he started, found he was unable to follow through. You ever been there? You ever been in the place where you were going to rebuke someone of great respect and authority and you rehearse the rebuke and the words that you've rehearsed start coming out and as they start coming out, you just feel this sense of deflation of, well, now that I hear myself, I just don't think I can follow through with this. That ever happened to you? I remember one time in my life I was going to rebuke my mother and same thing sort of, you know, I knew what I was going to say and then just about... One sentence into it, it's like, I don't think I can continue with this, you know? Maybe that's Peter here. Maybe as the words start coming out, Peter's anger is almost immediately diffused as he's looking into the Savior's face, into the Master's face, and reading his face. He just stepped in it. He just went somewhere he was not to go. So perhaps that's why he began to rebuke him. 